Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church as we continue our series in the letter of 1 Peter. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. If you're looking for 1 Peter, it's one of the last books of the New Testament. So you have the last book of the New Testament, the last book of your Bible is Revelation, and then right next to Revelation is a little letter called Jude, and then right next to Jude are three letters from John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then right before John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are 1st and 2nd Peter. 1st and 2nd Peter. So this morning's message is from 1st Peter. And 1st Peter is a letter written by the Apostle Peter, probably around 65 A.D., when Peter was the pastor of the church in Rome, and he's writing this letter to a group of suffering Christians who were living in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And Peter writes to them of a glory to come that would strengthen them to suffer well in Christ. As a matter of fact, the title of our message this morning is Living as Suffering Saints, for God's promised glory. Living as suffering saints for God's promised glory. And our specific text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And the title of our message this morning is A Living Hope. A Living Hope. Now, hope. Hope is very important. The human soul can withstand tremendous amounts of adversity and suffering, but it cannot withstand a loss of hope. When we begin to lose hope, our souls begin to wither. And if not treated, this hopelessness eventually, it breaks our spirit. Hope, hope is that desire for something better in the future. Hope is the belief that it can be better in the future. Hope is what sustains us while we're waiting for that something better. Here's my question to you this morning. How's your hope? Do you have hope? Or is your hope fading away? Is it slipping away? Are some of you saying, you know what? I've lost hope. It's a dark night of my soul. Well, here's my prayer for you this morning, that this message from this text in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, that God would use it to speak fresh hope to your souls, that hope, the hope of God would come into your soul by the power of the Spirit through the Word of God. So I want us to read the text together. Are you there? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation point. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven For you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, if you read in verse 3, you will note that God, 
who is blessed by Peter, and he calls us to bless God, that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, we're going to get to that living hope in a moment. It's actually the, the, the title of our message, and it's the first point of my sermon, Our Living Hope. But before we get to the living hope, we've got to ask ourselves this question. Why would God cause us to be born again to a living hope? Why would he do that? Here's the answer. Because he's a God of great mercy. Look at the text with me in verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation point. That was a shout. You can shout in church. And then he says, according to his great mercy. In other words, Peter's saying, according to God's great mercy, he's caused you to be born again to a living hope. I don't want to go past that great mercy quickly. Let's stop there for a moment. Because, you know, you've got to ask yourself, okay, God's given me this living hope. Why? Why would God give me anything good? Because God is merciful. Peter, most likely, is thinking of the Old Testament passage in Exodus 34 when he says the God of great mercy. Remember, Peter is a Jew, and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ who was a Jew, the completion of what the Jews believed was coming, Jesus brought. And so Peter is telling these people, you've got great hope, a living hope, even though you're suffering, and it's based upon this God of great mercy. Let's look at that text together. It's on the screen. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. Let me explain to you what's happening here in Exodus 34, 6 to 7. This is happening when Moses is on Mount Sinai. God has just led Israel out of Egypt, and he's constituting him as his people, and he's gathering them on Mount Sinai, and he's giving them the law, and he's giving them the sacrifices that will deal with their sin so that they can relate to God as his people. And then from there, he's going to move them into the promised land. And so Moses is coming up to the mountain with these two tablets where God will write on these tablets the Ten Commandments. And God comes and meets Moses and reveals himself to Moses. Picking up the narrative, verse 6. Exodus 34, 6. There you go. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So what does God say about himself? The Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's to the third and the fourth generation God is a God of great mercy and he has called his people out from Egypt delivering them they could not do that for themselves but now at Mount Sinai he's saying I'm going to have mercy on you not because you deserve it but because I am a God of great mercy I'm going to make covenant with you and I will preserve you. I will keep you. I will make a way for you to relate to me through the sacrificial system that he instituted on the Mount of Sinai. And I will keep you. I will preserve you. I will cause you to have a living hope. 
1,500 years later, that living hope is Jesus Christ. And Peter, picking up on that theme of God being merciful and preserving his people, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So back to our text in verse 3, when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, exclamation point, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Lord is saying, that's who I am. I revealed myself that way to Moses 1,500 years earlier. I'm revealing myself to you now because I am Jesus Christ. And my mercy will come to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And this is the living hope that I have caused you to be born again to through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, I'm here to tell you this morning, that hope is a living hope. It is not a dead dream. We've all had those, right? We all have this dream. I have a dream to play shortstop for the Yankees. Briefly, I had that dream. Until I quickly realized I have great hands, but I'm really slow. You may have a dream. I don't know what your dream is for a certain job, an education. Maybe for some of you children. Maybe for some of you that your children would follow the Lord. I don't know what your dream is. We can have dreams of our business prospering, of, you know, of our husband finally you know, cleaning up you know, the bathroom. I mean, whatever dream you have, there are big dreams and little dreams. But let me tell you something. Some of them die, don't they? They die horrible deaths. But this dream is not, this is not a dead dream. This is a living hope because it's based upon Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. Do you see that in the text? It is the, it is the hope that lives because the one who gives us that hope is alive. You got to, you got to remember who's saying this. Jump into the first century. Jump into Peter's head as he's sitting at his desk in Rome writing this letter to suffering Christians in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. You've got to understand, the guy who is writing this is the guy who 32 years earlier, in 33 AD, had his hopes die. Remember him? If you know your Bible, Peter is the one who said, I will fight for you, Jesus. I will never deny you, Jesus. And he's the one that denied him three times. And then he stands at the foot of the cross and he's watching the hope, his hope, the one he thought was Messiah, die and get buried. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be Peter for those days after Jesus' death? You want to talk about hopeless. You want to talk about someone that you might be concerned about if he were your friend. You're checking up on him. Is he answering the phone, metaphorically speaking? How's Peter doing? Oh, don't talk to Peter. The light has gone out in Peter's eyes. What he hoped for is dead. Ah, but that same Peter, three days later, is wandering around, and suddenly the Lord shows up. But he's alive. In a moment, Peter's hopelessness was gone, and he had hope again. That's the guy writing this. And the Lord who showed up, the Lord who rose from the dead, forgave him his sins. That's why he died on the cross. The same Lord that Peter saw ascend into heaven. And that Lord said, listen, Peter, go. Before he ascended, he said, go and preach this hope to all the nations. Don't you see? That's what Peter's doing here 32 years later. He's preaching that hope. 
And he's preaching it not just to the first century Christians who are suffering, but to 21st century Christians who are suffering, you and me. And he's saying that that hope is based on a risen Lord Jesus. Your dream may die. That hope will never die because Jesus is alive. As a matter of fact, that, that man who had denied the Lord, that same man, some 50 days later, preached the following about this Lord, this resurrected Lord. This is what he said in Acts chapter 2, verse 36 on the screen. Peter, preaching the first message on the day of Pentecost, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, 50-some days after Jesus' ascension into heaven, said this, 3,000 plus are there, and he says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. St. Peter, who was hiding right after Jesus' death, he's afraid he was going to be killed as well, is boldly proclaiming this Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit and say, this Jesus whom you crucified, God certified as both Lord and Christ, Messiah, Savior, not just of Israel but of the world, and he certified it by his resurrection from the dead. That's the living hope that Peter's writing about here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Do you have that hope? Is it yours? I don't know everybody here. Do do you believe? Have you repented and believed in that Jesus? I speak to you, dear friend, if you're a guest here, thank you for coming. I, I want those to come to this church who don't know Jesus, who are investigating. I hope we're a place they can come and ask honest questions and we can give honest answers. And, and I just say to you, do you have that hope? That hope is available by repenting and believing on Jesus who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of your sins and ascended into heaven and will one day return. See, this hope that we have in verse 4, Peter tells us that it's a heavenly inheritance. That's point two. Look at it with me, verse 4. Not only are we born again to a living hope at the end of verse 3, but look at verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So Peter says this living hope is actually an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. Think with me for a second about inheritance. Imagine right now that you get an email. And in the email, it says that you are the long-lost relative of a very wealthy person, and that wealthy person just recently died, and when they died, they left you an inheritance of a tremendous amount of money. How would you feel when you got that email? Yeah, woohoo indeed. It's January, right? I'm going to pay down that Visa card right now. I shouldn't have bought all those gifts for Christmas. <laughs> But even more so, there'd be joy, wouldn't it? Well, well, that's our idea of inheritance. That's a great idea of inheritance. It's not a bad one to have in your mind. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than the greatest inheritance wealth-wise you could ever get. And we're going to see why in a moment. But listen, the idea that Peter had of inheritance was a little different. And again, let me explain it to you. Peter is a first century Jew who's been converted to Christ. But here's Peter's idea of inheritance. Peter would go back to Mount Sinai, 1500 BC. He'd go back to his history as a Jew, and he would understand this, that at that very same mountain 
where God revealed himself as merciful to Moses, God gave Israel an inheritance. That inheritance was land in Canaan. So Mount Sinai is in a desert, a hostile, dry, scorpion-infested, snake-infested desert. But he gave them an inheritance. Every single Jew that was there, every family, every family that was part of a tribe, every tribe had a deed to a piece of property in Canaan. It'd be like you know a deed to beachfront property on Miami Beach or wherever you want to go, some island in the Caribbean or Mediterranean. And it's yours. It's your inheritance. And every Jew understood that. He understood that I have a piece of this property. That's my inheritance. There's a little plot of land in Judah. There's a little plot of land in Naphtali and in Gad, whatever tribe you're in, and it belongs to the Pinos. And and there it is. I'm in this desert right now. It is hot. It is arid. It is barren. But I'm thinking about that inheritance in the land that flows with milk and honey. And as they're wandering through the desert, you know what sustains them? The hope of that inheritance. They didn't earn it. It was a gift. It was God's gift, but it was their inheritance. And so that hope of that inheritance sustained them. And what Peter's saying to New Testament believers, New Testament Christians, God's people in the New Testament, he's saying this, that inheritance was meant to be simply a foreshadowing of a far greater inheritance. See, you, dear Christian, have a plot of land in the heavenly realms. You, my dear Christian, have deed to something that no one can ever take from you that will never go away because of what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And that inheritance sustains you when you're wandering around this old arid, hot, barren desert of a world at times. Trying to keep away from the scorpions and the snakes. Who likes scorpions and snakes? When they crawl into your sleeping bag in the middle of the night, you think, what was that on my leg? <laughs> you ever walk through a spider web and then for the next 20 minutes you feel spiders crawling on your neck? <laughs> so, so as we're walking through the, the desert of this world, look, I, I know you guys. Some of you I know better than others. To, to varying degrees, you're in a hot, arid desert right now in some areas of your life, aren't you? It, it, it seems barren. It's hard. There's conflict. There's a lack financially, maybe. There's, there's illness, maybe. There, there, there's worries about your children. But what sustains you, what sustains me, is this heavenly inheritance that we have. And, and Peter is saying to these guys, look to this inheritance, because listen, this inheritance is marked by three things. Look at verse 4. To an inheritance that is what? Three adjectives. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Oh, friends, imperishable. Our inheritance can never be destroyed. If you're the long-lost relative of someone, you know, some abuelito in Spain or somewhere, you know, who, who died, a, a wealthy person, someone could come and destroy it. If it's gold or whatever it is, you know, they can, right? But no one can come and destroy this inheritance. Why? Because it's being kept for you in heaven. God keeps it in heaven. It's not only imperishable, it's undefiled. It's an inheritance that you don't have to compromise to get. You don't have to lie, cheat, steal to get that inheritance. You know how people get when a a wealthy person dies? You know how all the relatives and brothers and sisters get? It can get nasty, can't it? People will lie, cheat, and steal to get that money. 
This, this inheritance isn't like that. It's undefiled. It's freely given. It's freely received. No compromise. It's yours. And it's unfading. Everything else you get here is fading. Everything. That new car will rust one day. These beautiful bodies we have will grow old and die one day. <laughs> but this inheritance is unfading. Think about this. He's saying this to people whose minds are thinking about the promised land where everything blooms. And so that idea of unfading is an idea that it will never wither. And Isaiah, the prophet, gives us a picture into that inheritance. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 on the screen, speaking of that inheritance, says this, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Why? Because our inheritance is Jesus himself. Oh, he's better than anything you may think you want right now. He is our inheritance, kept in the heavens, indestructible, indestructible, undefiled, and unfading. God keeps our heavenly inheritance, but God also keeps us, and that's verse 5. He keeps us for a sure salvation. Point three, our sure salvation. Look at verse 5 with me. Who, now I want you to follow this with me. Let's do a little grammar. Verse 4 ends with what? Kept in heaven, he's talking about our inheritance, an inanimate thing. Kept in heaven for you. So now he switches from it to you. So God keeps our inheritance, but then God keeps us for that inheritance. Do you see the transition between four and five? Does it excite you as much as it excites me? For you, verse five, who? Now he's speaking to the people, not the inheritance. He's speaking to the people. Who, you people, you, you elect exiles, you suffering people in Turkey, you suffering people in Miami and South Florida, who by God's power, oh, God's power is at work here, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. You see, here's the point. The inheritance is being kept for us and we're being kept for the inheritance. I love this. Salvation is from God, through God, and back to God. He saved us. He made us alive when we were dead. We had nothing to do with that. He then guards us and preserves us. And then at the final time, he's going to reveal it fully when Jesus returns so that we might give him all the glory and enjoy that glory. Amazing. I mean, I mean this, this is what sustains us in the midst of our suffering. I know your suffering's real. I'm not making, I'm not making, minimizing your suffering at all. I know it's hard. It's hard. But, but Peter would say, turn your eyes on the inheritance, the sure salvation. This word guarded, you see in verse five, you see that word? It carries with it the idea of a military fortress being guarded by a power far greater then any enemy can penetrate. It's the power of God. And it's being guarded, as we learn in verse 5, by faith. He gives us the faith, and then by faith, we are guarded because we trust in the Lord, who's the power that keeps us for a sure salvation. The idea here is, imagine, imagine a crack 
military unit soldiers that drop behind enemy lines and save you. And they, and they, they take you. And now they're escorting you through enemy lines until finally you break out and cross friendly lines. The friendly lines are the sure salvation that will come. We've tasted of it. We're saved. But we're going through that land. We're being saved. And one day we will be saved at Christ's second coming when he destroys his final enemy, death. See that? We're saved. Justification. Jesus saved us, caused us to be born again to a living hope. The Spirit of God gives us life. Stay with me. We're being saved. Sanctification. He's changing us corporately into the image of Christ. He's taking us through enemy territory. Oftentimes that enemy is right smack in the middle of my heart, the enemy within. It's other enemies. We're being saved by that strong warrior who's guarding us. He's guarding the inheritance. He's guarding the salvation. He promises you it is in Christ. No one can take it from you. It will never fade. And then one day we will be saved. We'll break through. When Jesus returns, man, there's going to be a glory that you cannot imagine. It will be worth it. It will be worth it when you get to the land of milk and honey. It will be worth it. you got a place there. Jesus has made that place for you. Listen, this idea of God guarding us, it's, it's usually in the normal things of life. It, it, it's in the decisions he didn't allow you to make. It's in the the direction, it's in the route you took home that's different than what you were going to take because the other route would have meant a bad accident. Most of us don't even know how much God has guarded us. But every once in a while, there's a story that will help us really appreciate this. And I think there's biblical precedent for this because the Bible says he gives his angels charge over us. So I'm going to share one of those stories with you. You probably won't ever be guarded this way, okay? This is pretty miraculous, But God does stuff like this, and he's doing stuff stuff like this that we're not even aware of, oftentimes. Guards our children. Jesus even told us to pray that way, deliver us from evil and the evil one. So here's the story. When when the Lord first called me into the ministry uh, some 34 years ago, can that be possible? (laughs) Cannot be possible. Basically, when he called me in the ministry, I looked like Isaiah. And... It was through a group of people that had a vision for the world. And so I had the privilege to labor with these people for about seven or eight years. And I met a lot of people who gave their lives for the gospel. And one of them was an old missionary by the time I met him from Mississippi who was saved in the Second World War on a ship when he was, he was fighting with our Navy. He was saved on the, there on that, on that vessel. And then God called this old Mississippi boy to be a missionary to Mexico for the rest of his life. He was the funniest guy in the world. When he spoke Spanish, perfect Spanish, with a thick Mississippi drawl. It was hilarious. And if you're Cuban, don't laugh, because your Spanish sometimes sounds like you got a Mississippi drawl, too. You never open your mouth. You know what I'm talking about. And so this story comes from him. And the story is about a Mexican man whom the Lord saved when this old American missionary preached the gospel in this Mexican man's village a little village called Ixmiquilpan, which is just north of Mexico City. And the Mexican's name is Benancio Hernandez. And I know Benancio. So Benancio is Mexican, but he's, he's really he's Indian. Okay, So he would have grown up worshiping the Aztec gods. He was a pagan, which in Mexico, there's so many of these tribes. There's many languages in Mexico that yet to be translated. So I remember preaching one summer in Ixmiquilpan. I preached in Spanish. Benancio translated into the Indian dialect for his people. So here's the story. 
Venancio, you know, God saves Venancio. He begins to preach in his village. And it's, he, he encounters resistance, hatred. He realizes these people want to really hurt me. And he recalled one night where there was like a stirring and a rustling and there was a group that came by his home and he was kind of getting ready. He said, Lord, if this is my time, I'm willing to give my life for you. But then they went away. So several years later, God had mercy on that village because he's the God of great mercy. And he saved many, many of the leaders of that village. And so one night they were having fellowship together. And Venancio asked him, he said, listen, I've got a question for you. You remember that night a couple of years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why'd you guys turn back? And they said, oh, Venancio, thank God that we turned back. But he says, we were so mad at you that you were dishonoring our gods and your way of life and you were you know, proponing this Jesus Christ as the Savior. He said, we came to kill you that night. But when we walked up on your home, we were scared away by a bunch of huge Texas cowboys that were standing around your house. Now stay with me for a second. And Venancio said, I don't know any Texas cowboys and I certainly don't have the money to pay for them to surround my house. And they both just stopped and just praised the Lord. Now, does that happen all the time? Well, of course not. And are there times when God would have allowed that, that group to kill Venancio because he, that was his will? Yes. And that begs other questions, okay? But here's the point. God will guard you he keeps your inheritance in heaven and he will keep you here on earth for the day when that salvation is revealed for you. And most of the time, you won't even know. He just does it because he's good and he's powerful and he's kind. How would I summarize this passage for you this morning? Here it is on the screen. God births hope in our hearts of a heavenly inheritance for a sure salvation. God births hope in our hearts for a heavenly inheritance, for a sure salvation. God is our inheritance. God is the one who keeps us. God gives us that vision of a better future, of a better life. He is the one that gives it and he births us into this living hope through Jesus Christ's resurrection. And then he keeps that inheritance for us in the heavens and he keeps us, he guards us as we walk through this earth and one day we will see it fully. We will see him Fully. And that, my friends, is the inheritance Peter speaks of. That is the living hope Peter speaks of. And that is the inheritance and the living hope that is far greater than any inheritance on this world. Listen, most of us do not have an inheritance on this world. Most of us will not have an inheritance in this world. But, oh, friends, we have a far greater one in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's the one that we focus our eyes on. Our inheritance is God himself. And God calls us to speak that living hope, that heavenly inheritance to one another, to speak to our souls about it. Listen, in the Old Testament, there was a group of believers. They were called the sons of Korah. These guys were worship leaders. They were musicians, David and team. This is what they did. And there was a a group of three of them and they're associated with several Psalms. And these sons of Korah, they knew what it was to suffer. They knew what it was to be on the front lines when God's enemies were their enemies because they hated God and they hated them. And they penned this Psalm. And I want to end with this Psalm. And it's the Psalm I want us to memorize. It's the Psalm I want us to speak to one another, to our children, to our own souls when hopelessness starts crowding in and withering our souls. And here it is, Psalm 42, 5 and 6. Why are you downcast, 
O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Listen, they're suffering and they're remembering the promised land. For us, it's a, it's a heavenly promised land. And they're saying, I remember God's inheritance. I remember God's mercy. And I'm going to speak to my soul. Hope in God, a living hope, a hope that's imperishable, a hope that's undefiled, a hope that's unfading, a hope that is only found in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Worship team, please join me up front. Father, I pray that you would birth this living hope that is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in the hearts of those right now in this room. If they are unbelievers, if they came here this morning not knowing you, unregenerate, I pray that right now by your spirit you would work in their hearts and give them life. Let their minds understand this truth. Give them the gift of repentance by grace and faith by grace and call them and may they respond by grace now. If that's you, do business with God, friend. It's between you and God. They would repent and believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That hope would be born. But for the majority of us, Lord, who do have that hope, but it's slipping away. We're battered on the waves of unemployment, rejection, conflict, fears for our own financial future, fears, concerns for our children's well-being. We're battered. Perhaps even experiencing discrimination in a culture that is increasingly angry about us because they're angry about God. Lord, would you give them fresh hope? May their eyes be focused on Jesus. And Lord, may we join Peter, who began our text this morning with these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we sing together, Blessed be your name, no matter what. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing that song. Blessed be your name.